love to get to know you even more so. And so, yeah, just, we want to welcome you at this time. Uh, but uh, if you have a Bible and uh, if you are able to turn to Exodus 32, that would be great. Our scripture is going to come from Exodus 32, verse 1 through 6. And when you have it, if you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and make a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Let's pray. You may be seated. Father, we are so thankful for your grace, for your mercy. I pray that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing to you. Play that we'll see the depths of our sins in today's passage. At the same time, we'll notice that your grace runs deeper. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Exodus 32 is a pivotal chapter, not just in the book of Exodus, but in all of Scripture. Now, after crossing the Red Sea, we heard last week that the Israelites, they entered into the wilderness, and it's a place that's hard to live. It's lacking a lot of things in the human eye. However, this place was also a place where the Israelites, they experienced God's provision. God, he met every need that the Israelites had. You know, when they were thirsty, God turned bitter water sweet. He also brought springs of water out from a rock. When they were hungry, God brought bread from heaven. When they were hot in the day, God provided a cloud uh, of pillar, uh, and also at night, when it was really, really cold, God turned on the heat, right, by giving them uh, a pillar of fire as well. In many ways, although the desert, the wilderness was lacking a lot of things, one thing that it was not lacking was God's provision. Every single day, the Israelites experienced this. And even more so, in Exodus 19, they come to this place called the Wilderness of Sinai. And they stopped. And as we know, this is the place where they receive the Ten Commandments along with the other instructions on how to be God's holy people. How to live in a way that's honoring to God. Because God has set them apart from the land of Egypt. And God, he gives this commandment to Moses and Moses actually comes down once. 
to the people, and he kind of announces this, and he asks the people, are you willing to live by these laws? Are you willing to live by these commandments? And the people say in Exodus 24, verse 7, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. They're on board. They're all for it. No, the Bible actually says that God brought Moses, Aaron, and his sons along with 70 elders of Israel, and they had communion and fellowship in the presence of the Lord. This happened all in Mount Sinai. And once again, God calls Moses to come up the mountain, come up to the mountain, and along with him, he brings Joshua. And the Bible says at the end of Exodus 24, for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses was there speaking to God. God was giving further instructions on how to live specifically uh, centered around the tabernacle. He was having this building project, right? Giving instructions on how to build this building so that he can dwell in the presence of the people. And here's where we pick up in Exodus 32 because it has been a long time. And we see in verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So here we see something really wacky in a sense, right? Aaron, he, um, he gets this re request from the people saying that, hey, make us gods. And Aaron says, yeah, well, bring me some jewelry, right? Some gold that you have, the earrings that you have, not just yours, but your wives and your children's. And the people, they bring all that they have to Aaron. By the way, where did they get these, these gold and, and, and earrings? Well, they got it from Egypt, when they were leaving um, the land, God blessed them in a way that he motivated the hearts of the, the, the Egyptians so that they would bless the Israelites. And so they bring the very provision of God. They bring it all together. And what Aaron does is just remarkable. He brings out a sharp tool, a graving tool, right? And he made a golden calf. And the people said, these are your gods, O Israel brought you out of the land of Egypt. And if you think this is pretty bad, it gets even worse. Look at verse 5. And when Aaron saw that, saw this, he built an altar before it, an altar that was normally used to worship God. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So in a couple verses, they broke the first, second, and third commandment, right? You shall have no gods before you that you should not create crave any images for yourself, and you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And then it says in verse 6, and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. In other words, they had Sunday service, they went out back home, and they lived the rest of their lives however they wanted to live. According to their desires, according to their pleasures, they simply indulged in the world, right? They played. Eat, drink, rose up to play. That's the response. So uh, I, I know at this point it's tempting for us to zone out because this is such a familiar story to us. Uh, I mean, we heard it so many times that we already know how this story ends, right? Some of you might even say, well, 
Pastor James, I don't really have issues with worshiping golden calves. I mean, my issue might be I eat too much of it, right? I eat too much of cows, right? But I don't have an issue when it comes to worshiping these golden images. I mean, I don't have anything like that at home. I don't have any pictures or any statues or anything. So this passage is a little bit irrelevant for me. But if you go to 1 Corinthians 10, Paul actually writes about this event, this specific event in Exodus 32. And this is what he says to the New Testament believers who are living in this pagan environment in the city of Corinth. This is what he says. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, meaning that they were under the cloud of Mount Sinai. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, talking about manna, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. So Paul makes this connection that this story is not irrelevant for us New Testament Christians because the rock that provided the springs of water was Christ. So somehow, this story is still meaningful for those who are in Christ. This passage is actually inseparable when it comes to our lives um, because this passage is talking about Christ. Our lives and the lives of the Israelites are not that different. Notice Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says this, Nevertheless, with most of them, most of the Israelites who received all this provision, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. And verse 6, Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So the main point of today's text is very clear that we will not desire the evil that's displayed in Exodus 32. Paul is giving a clear warning that the life of the Israelites, what they are doing in chapter 32 of, of the book of Exodus, is not that different from what you guys normally do in your everyday life. Now, I remember when I was younger, when I heard about this story, I always thought, man, these people are stupid. I mean, they are so foolish. I mean, if you want to build an idol, make something bigger, make something better, make something more beautiful. Why a golden calf? I mean, this is just three months into them leaving Egypt. No, they just crossed the Red Sea. Every single day up to this point, they're still eating the manna that God is providing. They still see the the cloud uh, and, and the fire, the pillars of cloud and fire. They are still witnessing the cloud that's covering Mount Sinai. That's why they can't see Moses. And for some crazy reason, they come up with this idea that they want to build an idol and worship it. And for the longest time, I thought this passage, the purpose of this passage was stupidity. That this is how stupid you can get in life. But the more and more I read this passage, I realize that this passage is not about stupidity. It's actually about sin. How sin makes you so blind to the reality around you. Now, just like the Israelites, we struggle with sin. The first thing that the Israelites struggled was waiting. They struggled to wait for God's timing. Notice that in verse 1, all this happened because when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Now, instead of praying 
instead of fasting, instead of hoping in the Lord or waiting on the Lord, what the people did in Exodus 32 is they grew impatient. They said, well, we can't wait any longer. This guy, Moses, I know that he did a lot for us so that we are here today. He led us out of Egypt, but he's nowhere to be found. So what they decided to do, they become restless. They become they get worried about what's to, to happen um, moving forward. So ultimately what they do is they take matters into their own hands. And that's the problem. They don't wait for God's timing. They take matters into their own hands. And if we can be honest with ourselves, we struggle with the same thing. That God tells us to wait a lot of times. He tells us to seek his face a lot of times. But we just want answers immediately. I mean, some of us might say, I pray for a couple of days for my career. I pray for a couple of days whether or not to date this person. I pray for a couple of days for my financial problems. But God is just not answering. So I just got to go with plan B. I guess I just got to take matters into my own heart, um, hands. I, just got, I, I think I need to figure things out because God is not responding. A lot of times we have the same problem where we get impatient before God's timing. We often struggle struggle with this idea of of waiting on the Lord. Not only that, we struggle because we ignore God's commands just like the Israelites, right? The Israelites, they clearly knew the Ten Commandments along with the other commandments. It's just been a couple weeks since they have received that. Yet, they just forget about all that. They just throw it all out of the window. Actually, they're not forgetting about these things. They're simply saying that it doesn't matter in my life. God gave them clear instructions. This is after they received the Ten Commandments. However, we still see that they are disobedient. They are unwilling to submit to God's will. In the same way, how many of us do this in our everyday life? We know exactly what God wants us to do. We know exactly what we need to do as Christians, right? Um, You know, when I lead the youth group, a lot of times, you know, in small groups, um, even our, our students know the answer. I asked the question, you know, what do you need to do in life? And they would say, I need to pray more. I need to read the Bible more. You know, I need to have more fellowship with other believers. You know, I need to encourage other people. They know the answers. The question is, they just don't want to do it. The reality for us, too, is that we know what God wants. The truth is, we don't want to do it. Man, if we can just obey everything that we know. A lot of us say, well, I just don't know enough about God. Well, if you can just obey all that you know about God, then you can be a good Christian. The question is not about simple knowledge. The question is about obedience in the heart. So the children of Israel, they were impatient and they ignored the commands of God. And finally, they compromised their worship. They compromised their worship. Look at verse 4. Look at what they say when Aaron brings out this beautiful golden calf. They say, these are your gods, O Israel who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, this sounds so ridiculous, but let's try to break this down. Notice that the Israelites, they're not denying the fact that God led them out of Egypt. What they're saying is, well, this other God that we created, plus the God of Israel, Yahweh, them combined together, they brought us out of the land of Egypt. Notice that God's is plural in verse 4. And not only that, when Aaron sees this, he says, well, 
this day, tomorrow, shall be a feast to the Lord. So somehow, they are connecting the golden calf with God. How is it? A lot of times, we think that idolatry is simply ignoring God and worshiping other idols. But what really idolatry is, is God is still there. A lot of us still worship God. It's just that we put other things right next to God. It's just that we put other things equal to God. And that's called syncretism, right? It's, it's like you have multiple gods. And, 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 and by the way, why are they so obsessed with the golden calf? Well, it's because that's what they have seen in Egypt. In Egypt, they saw Egyptian peoples worshiping many gods. And one of the gods was Apis, which was this bull god. And so when life got tough and they got antsy, right, they had a hard time waiting, what happened is they went back to their old ways, right? They went back to what they're used to. And what, what is that? Well, worshiping many gods, creating idols. In the same way, we struggle with this issue all the time, right? When life is good, I mean, we praise God, we worship God. God is the best. He is all that we need. However, when life gets tough, when you start waiting upon the Lord, when the commandments of God don't sound as sweet to your ears, what happens is we simply put other things right next to God. It's not that we skip Sunday worship. It's not that we skip life group. It's not that we don't call ourselves Christians. We simply worship other gods along with God. And if you don't see this as a problem, I wonder how you would feel later on when you get married and your spouse goes out with someone else, right? Would you say, well, that's cool as long as that person's still loving me? Absolutely not. Idolatry is a problem. It's the de-godding of God. It's simply taking God out of his place, out of his element. He belongs in the center of everything. We saw that, you know, weeks ago. However, it's just placing God with other things together. Maybe we don't create golden calves, but we worship the God of comfort, money, success, security, insecurity, pride, selfish ambitions, maybe relationships within families, within friends, romantic relationships, all these different things. And we still come on to Sundays. However, on the weekdays, we simply say, well, these other things are just as important as God, maybe more important. And we commit the same sin. So this act that looks so stupid in Exodus 32 doesn't look as stupid anymore when you realize that the motivation behind all this is sin, that we're no different from the people of Israel. And notice how God responds in verse 7. This is how God responds to the sin of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked People, meaning they are so prideful and arrogant. Verse 10, just blows my mind. Now, therefore, let me alone. God says, hey, Moses, leave me alone. That my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. 
Now, some of us believe that God never gets mad or angry because he's a God of love. But do you know that he loves you so much, that he loves his people so much, that when his people walks away from him and they walk in foolishness, that it makes him extremely angry and mad, that it's frustrating to him to the point that God says to Moses, hey, leave me alone. I'm just going to wipe them out, and I'm going to restart with you. Man, Moses is put in a difficult situation right now because he could say, yeah, God, I mean, I'm thankful that you see me in a good way. Right? I'm thankful that you want to restart with me. At least you're going to spare my life, right? But one thing that you have to notice here is God hates sin with a passion. That he says this, this wrath, it's burning inside of him, you know, and you know when you look at fire, you have kind of yellow fire, orange fire, but the hottest fire is, is, is blue fire, right? It's, it, it has the hottest temperature, and God's wrath is, when it's talking about God burning hot, it's even hotter than that. That's how passionately he hates sin, because sin is the only thing that separates people from God. So the people of Israel, when they don't see Moses, they respond in sin. God responds to sin in anger, righteous anger with his wrath. Notice how Moses responds to God in verse 11. But Moses, Moses implored, begged the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all the land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. So Moses' response is not, okay, God, thank you. Let's restart. His response is, God, have mercy on these people. But notice that he doesn't say, well, God, these people, after all, they're, they're not such bad people, right? I mean, if you catch them on a good day, no, they're not that bad. They're pretty decent. No, he doesn't make excuses for Israel. He doesn't say, maybe they were so lonely or maybe they were so lost in their sin. He doesn't say, they deserve a second chance. No, if you look down later when he, Moses prays, Moses says, this people, they have sinned greatly against you, God. Moses does not downplay the sin of Israel. Rather, he prays to God. In light of God's character, his purpose, and his plan. Everything about this prayer, he doesn't say a single word about Israel. Rather, everything is about God. How God, his promises are unchanging. How his plan is unshaken. How his good will is always carried out. You know, he begs God to remember the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Moses is saying, for your name's sake, God, for your glory, so that other nations don't look down on you, but they see that you are the true God. For your plan and for your promises, I beg of you, would you have mercy on these people? And something crazy happens in verse 14. And the Lord 
relented from the disaster that he has spoken of bringing on his people. And that word relented simply means that God changed his mind. And a lot of us have an issue with this verse because there's two things that clash, right? How can an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sovereign God change his mind? And other people think, you know, on the flip side, prayer actually works. It can change the mind of God. So the question is, does prayer really work? Is God really sovereign? How does this work? Did really God change his mind simply because Moses said the right words? And I think, you know, we have to look carefully at the text. You know, it almost seems like God is bipolar, right? Just a couple of verses before, God said, hey, I'm burning in anger. I'm going to just consume everyone. Like, I don't care. No, leave me alone, Moses. And just a couple of verses later, just because it's one prayer, God has changed his mind. And just in case you're wondering, this word is kind of a tricky word. In 1 Samuel 15, 29, it says, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. That word regret is the same Hebrew word that's used here. I think the scripture is clearly saying that God has changed his mind. In Psalm 106, verse 23, it says this, Therefore, he said he would destroy them. God said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. So the question is, does prayer work? And how can a sovereign God change his mind? And I think the key to unlocking that question is found in verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. Before God even spoke about his wrath, before he even said, I'm going to wipe away everyone, you know the first thing that God said was, Moses, go down. And as he's going down, God is explaining how mad he is, how frustrated he is, how angry he is regarding this sin. But notice, God is the one who sent Moses as a mediator for the sins of Israel. God provides this mediator in light of the sins of Israel. And this is what happens throughout the the wilderness, right? The story of, of Exodus. You see time and time again, people falling short they sin, they, they, they mess up, right? They break God's covenant. However, for some reason, because of Moses, God spares their life. On behalf of, of, of the people, Moses always stands before God, pleads their case. If God was going to destroy, by the way, Israel, why send Moses to do that? Why not just release his anger and wrath right at that moment? Isn't that weird? that God would wait, send Moses, explain how angry he is, and then wait until Moses prays this prayer and then change his mind? I don't know if you're seeing this, but God was the one who initiated Moses' prayer. If God never sent Moses, Moses would have never interceded on behalf of Israel. So does prayer go against the sovereignty of God? No. Because out of God's sovereignty, out of his knowledge, out of his plan, what he decided to do, he decided to work through the prayer of the righteous. 
the prayer of the mediator. And he sends this mediator to stand be between the gap where sinners are here, God is there, there's no way this can be reconciled, but for some reason, Moses is able to stand in between. And, and you see later down the road, it, it says when Moses is praying, he prays, God, if, if you don't answer my prayers, you know, rather take my name out of the book life. Kill me, but spare these people. In a way, he's willing to sacrifice his own life. You know what's funny about this? The people of Israel, they were the ones who despised Moses. They're, they're the ones who ignored Moses. They're the ones who always are complaining to Moses. And I don't know if you're seeing this connection because when you come to the New Testament, God sends a mediator to, for the sins of the world. That the very person that people despised, the very person that people ignored, God, out of his sovereign grace, sent him to this world. And Jesus Christ comes to this world. He stands before sinners on behalf of sinners, and he makes a case, he pleads to God, begs God to have mercy. And he doesn't just offer up his life but to, and say, you know, God, just take my life, but he actually gives his life on the cross. The only reason why you and I do not stand before the burning wrath of God is because of the mediating work of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to this world. He intercedes on your behalf and my behalf that you and I do not deserve anything but death based on what we have done out of our ignorance, out of us, our impatience, out of us creating all these idols in our life. However, for some crazy reason, God says to Jesus, uh, the Father says to Jesus, go down, be with those people. And he sends Jesus as a mediator. And through his mediating work, through his sacrificial uh, work on the cross, we have life. We have a second chance. So prayer does work within the realm of God's sovereignty. You know, if you go down to, to verse 27. So verse 26, it says, Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. So Moses, actually, when he goes down, he's, he's burning hot too. He throws down the, the two stones that he had in his hands, uh, right? And, and, and it's interesting because he even makes, he, he burns, burns the golden calf. And he, the Bible says he makes people drink the ashes of the golden calf. It's like, that's, that's pretty weird, right? And then what Moses says is, hey, I want you to stand before the Lord, and if you are on God's side, come here. And for those who came, it was only the Levites, just a few people who stood on God's side. And Moses says, hey, get your knives. Walk through these people. And on that day, thousands died. Sin has its consequences. God sent a mediator. Out of his grace, he provided a way. All these people have to do is repent and stand on the side of God. However, if they stood where they were, ignorantly, pridefully, they face the wrath of God. So how do we apply this text? I think we can apply this text in two ways. First of all, are you living in foolishness 
creating idols in your life. It's not that you are not worshiping God on Sundays, but the fact that every other day you're creating all these idols in your life and they are more important to you than God. Are you struggling with this idea of waiting on the Lord, waiting for his timing, and you're simply trying to take matters in your own hands and you don't realize when you do so, you're working with your power, not God's power? Are you struggling to acknowledge that God's word, his commands are true, and somehow you're trying to distort it, twist it, change it, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden, and somehow you're trying to come up with excuses to disobey and think you'll be okay. If that is you, I think there's a clear message in today's text to repent. But the good news is there is grace and mercy because God is the one who sent the mediator for you, Jesus Christ. I think the second way we can apply this text is this. Have you lost faith in the power of prayer? If you see in today's passage, God answers prayer. That he chose for whatever reason to work through the prayer of Moses. And if you look in the book of Acts, every single chapter, starting from the very beginning when people are praying, the Holy Spirit comes down. As people are praying and Peter preaches, 3,000 people are saved. As John and Peter were going up to the the temple to pray you know they get go into prison and, and when they're in prison people pray and for some miraculous reason they're released later on when Stephen when he stands before the people and he gives the sermon the Bible says that he looked up into heaven praying and what happens in Acts chapter 8 the church explodes that although there's persecution everywhere you see Christians go there are churches that are being established Time and time again, the book of Acts tells us that God works through prayer. For some crazy reason, he invites us to pray. You praying is not, it might be, just be what God is waiting in his sovereign plan. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that, you know, that your prayer is going to change anything, but it's the fact that God ordained you to pray, and through his ordained purpose and, and, and way God is willing to work in such a way. So I love what you know, Pastor David Platt says about this. Moses in this passage has not changed the plan of God. He is actually fulfilling the plan that God had ordained. So you never know that the thing that God ordained you to do right now is prayer. And when I talk about prayer, I'm not just talking about tiny prayers. I'm talking about praying on behalf of sinners. I'm talking about praying on behalf of people who deserve nothing but the wrath of God. And we do so. We beg of God to have mercy on the people that we know who do not know the Lord because Jesus mediated for us. So let's embrace the power of prayer. Let's stay away from the foolishness of idolatry. Let's not repeat the life of Exodus 32, but rather embrace the life that was displayed in our Savior, which is being obedient to the very end. Let's pray.